crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. My name is Christopher Reams and I will be your host for today's program. And today we're going to cover some fascinating science behind the Hebrew Bible. We'll look at some amazing research by a Dr. Chaim Shore on coincidences, so to speak, in the Hebrew language. Then after that, if we've got time, we'll take a look at the science behind one rather sensitive biblical subject, that of circumcision. But first up, the coincidences of the Hebrew language. Now, this came to my attention courtesy of an article that Mr. Joel Hilliker sent to me. Uh, Mr. Joel Hilliker is the managing editor of our sister website, thetrumpet.com. This article describes the research of Dr. Chaim Shor, a scientist working in the Negev, and he describes himself as a non-observant Jew, yet he sets out to scientifically prove whether or not anything can be said for the divine origin of the Hebrew Bible. Now, this uh, article is from BreakingIsraelNews.com, and it's written by Dr. Rivka Lambert. And in it, she quotes Shore as saying, As a scientist, my only motivation was to reveal the truth based on statistical analysis, based on real quantitative data. I have not tried to prove that the Torah is divine or any such objective. So what did Shor's examination of the Hebrew language find in the Torah, or uh, the first five books of the Bible is what that means? Take the word for pregnancy, herion. Now, similar to Roman numerals, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or alephbet as it's called, has a numeric value. The total sum of the word herion, or pregnancy, is 271. This is particularly interesting because it is the median number of days for a normal pregnancy to last. Now, normal pregnancies last between 266 and 280 days. So, Shaw suggests the unique and, can we say, intended significance of the early Hebrew word pregnancy in equaling the number of days for a pregnancy. What about ozen? Ozen is the Hebrew word for ear. The Hebrew word for balance is izun, and it comes from the same root. So the Hebrew word for ear and the Hebrew word for balance are directly related. And we now know that our sense of balance comes from the mechanism in the ear. But this was only discovered at the end of the 19th century. So just pure coincidence that ear and balance would be directly linked in the Hebrew that pregnancy would add up to the number of days for a pregnancy, or could it be divine inspiration? But wait, there's more, much more. What about the human hand? This word is yad in Hebrew, and it adds up to 14. How many bones are there in the human hand? You guessed it, 14. Now, Shaw compared the numerical value of words for colors, like red, Adom in Hebrew, and yellow, Tzahov. And he compared this numerical value 
to wave frequencies, the wave frequencies of these colors. And he found that the word value actually matched up to the color's wave frequency. Now, he provided in his book several graphs. Obviously, we can't show that on today's program. But it's, it's amazing the research that went into this and how even the numerical value for words of colors match the value for the wave frequencies. Chaim Shor also looks at uh, comparing the calendrical numerical values with uh, the Hebrew calendar. So the Hebrew word for year is shana. The Hebrew complete non-leap year is 355 days long. Can you guess how, uh, how much the word for year adds up to? The numerical value for year, shana, 355. Now, it all goes on. This is some really interesting stuff uh, relating to, the, to days and to, to the Hebrew calendar. Now, the division of the day into 24-hour blocks was customary in biblical times. The division of the hour, though, was slightly different. But regarding the 24-hour the block, is there any meaning behind the Hebrew word for midday and the Hebrew word for midnight, which each occur at the sixth hour of the day and of the night. Now, midday, Tzaharaim, equals 345. Day, Yom, equals 56. Dividing the value of midday and the value of day equals 6. Actually, it's 6.16, but obviously we round it up to 6. Now, midnight, Neshef, equals 430. Night, Lil, equals 70. The, div- the value for midnight divided by the value for night, again, it equals 6. Actually, it's 6.14, but again, we round it to 6. So is that just coincidence that we have two sets of four completely different numbers here, and they both e- equate to 6, to the nearest hundredth of a decimal? Now we continue. What about daylight versus night? In, he, in uh, Jerusalem, the average daylight duration is very slightly longer than the night. It has been ca- calculated at about 51.8% of the 24-hour duration. Now, adding together the value for the Hebrew words morning and day, we get 358. Adding together the, the, the value for the Hebrew words evening and night, we get 347. So for the daylight portion, 358 for the dark portion, 347. So down to the nearest tenth of a percentage, the Hebrew words for morning and day represent the exact numerical value of time of the average daylight within Israel and the evening and night representing the dark value. Now, how could the ancients have known this? Typical evolutionary scientists try to paint them as blundering simpletons, grunting out primitive words, and they especially like to downplay the Israelites, uh, downplaying the complexity of their past. But where did this ancient mathematical linguistic precision, down to the nearest tenths and hundredths of percentages, come from? There's a lot more that Shaw goes into, including fascinating numerics relating to planets and their diameters. He's got a lot more graphs uh, that he provides regarding all of those things and different uh, interpretations of Hebrew words and meanings. Again, is it all just coincidental or perhaps special added depth and richness 
to the language by divine inspiration. Now, I by no means agree with everything that Shore has written down in his, in his revised book. A lot of it is quite heavy reading as well, but many of his points are fascinating and scientifically sound and, frankly, amazing. Shaw stated that, quote, When I first obtained the new findings on my computer screen, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was so overwhelming, I ran around like a lion in a cage. I then ran and reran the program and still got exactly the same results. It took me a while to digest all these new findings and comprehend that these are all for real. And remember, this was research from a scientist and non-observant man. But guess what? Shaw found himself stuck in presenting his research to his peers. In his book, he asks, quote, The reader may wonder why the statistical analyses in this book, including those in this current chapter, have not been submitted for publication in recognized and highly esteemed scientific journals like Science or Nature. The answer may be easily guessed. No journal was willing to even consider reviewing, let alone publishing, papers with claims as displayed in this book. Open-mindedness to all facts of nature, a source of pride for many highly revered journals, ended when claims of religious flavor, no matter how scientifically corroborated, were involved. Note that point, that open-mindedness to all facts of, of nature, this is something that that uh, these journals pride themselves in. Open, uh, this open-mindedness to all facts of nature, this ended when claims of religious flavor, no matter how scientifically corroborated, were involved. He continues, therefore, as a result of responses received to preliminary inquiries, none of the statistical analyses displayed in this book have ever been submitted for review in peer-reviewed journals. So, our scientific educators, the people in many cases helping to raise our children, don't want them knowing about corroborated science like this and how much science actually backs up the Bible. But if you want to check out Shaw's research for yourself, you can actually download his entire revised book from his own website, all 360 pages of it. It's a, it's a long and heavy read um, on Chaim Shaw. .wordpress.com. It's entitled Coincidences in the Bible and in Biblical Hebrew. And again, I don't agree with everything that he writes, and a lot of it is quite heavy reading, but there are some really interesting points and research that he brings out there. So we'll take a short break there, but stay with us. We'll be looking at the science behind circumcision. This is Watch Jerusalem where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Christopher Eames, and we've just gone through some of the coincidences, so to speak, of the Hebrew language used in the Bible and some of the remarkable science behind them, uh, behind the numerical value, behind the words, and the different scientific uh, fields that they relate to. But now we're going to segue into a slightly different topic, still on the subject of science, 
Uh, but instead of looking at the science behind words, we're going to look at the science behind God's commands, some of which are considered by many to be unusual and arbitrary. So we'll look at one in particular, that of circumcision. Now, circumcision today, when you bring up the term, it generally conjures up thoughts of Jewish and or Muslim tradition whose use has spread through the Western world, uh, particularly through relation to the Bible, uh, biblical adherence and cleanliness, especially through the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, the earliest biblical mention of circumcision is found in Genesis 7 with God's words to the patriarch Abraham as follows. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision is uh, undertaken by, by a number of different cultures throughout Africa, a lot of tribal cultures throughout Polynesia. Uh, the Aboriginal culture in uh, Australia. We have, uh, as I said, the Muslim practices of uh, circumcision. But there is something very unique to the Israelite law of circumcision, something very unique that separates the Abrahamic law of circumcision from other cultures that circumcise. And that is, of course, the timing of circumcision. Again, here in Genesis 17, we read verse 12. And he that is eight days old, eight days old among you, shall be circumcised every man child in your generations. Now, to this day, religious Jews are scrupulous in following this command, circumcising precisely on the eighth day, even if it means doing normally forbidden uh, duties, should the date fall on the Sabbath. Examples of circumcision, as I said, can be found in many different other cultures, and they don't obviously adhere to this eight-day principle that that God speaks about. We have the ancient Egyptians uh, shown in their wall art. Uh, They circumcised uh, grown men. Islam has no definitive set date for circumcision and is generally done at any time up to the age of puberty. Uh, The circumcision practiced commonly through African tribes is usually done to adolescent boys as part of a uh, manhood ritual, transitioning from boyhood to manhood, part of warrior uh, initiation rites. And the same is the case for circumcision for the Aboriginal and Polynesian boys. So we have this unique practice being done among the Israelites, circumcision on the eight on the eighth day. So the Jews and the Israelites uh, especially stand out in the matter of timing. But why? Is the command for circumcision on the eighth day merely arbitrary? Did Abraham just pull a number out of thin air and attribute it to God? The answer to this is fascinating. Modern scientific advancement over the past century has been able to provide us much knowledge on the subject of blood and the circulatory system. Dr. Grant Jeffrey writes that, quote, the blood clotting chemical prothrombin peaks to its highest level when a newborn reaches the eighth day after birth. He continues, on this day as well, the eighth day, the liver is developing vitamin K, which assists in blood clotting. These two clotting agents, vitamin K and prothrombin, rise to the highest level 110% on the eighth day following birth. 
without vitamin K and prothrombin, blood will not clot properly and the possibility of severe bleeding as well as infection would make circumcision dangerous in a primitive medical situation. A couple of other scientists, Emmett Holt and Rustin McIntosh, write in their book Holt's Pediatrics that that newborns, quote, have a peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. Hemorrhages at this time, though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive. They may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and may cause death. And that's between the second and fifth days of life, susceptibility to bleeding. Bert Thompson, PhD, writes, quote, On the eighth day, the amount of prothrombin present actually is elevated to above 100% of normal. And notice this, it is the only day in a male's life in which this will be the case under normal conditions. If surgery is to be performed, day eight is the perfect day to do it vitamin K and prothrombin levels are at their peak. So the eighth day, proven by modern science to be the single best day in a male's life for circumcision. The question then must be asked, how on earth did Abraham know? How did Moses know in order to document this in the book of Genesis? How, when this was only discovered in the 20th century, only with modern medical instruments and calculations, have we even been able to graph these uh, levels of of available prothrombin and concentration of prothrombin together with vitamin K? So how could these ancients have known? There can only really be one reasonable answer, that God exists and that his command to Abraham was divine inspiration from the creator of our anatomy. It's amazing uh, that proof for God's existence, as well as proof for whom he specifically worked through, can be found in something that, on the face of it, seems so minor and insignificant. But there are dozens of other such examples, instances of God giving a command or a description of something that science has only just come to understand thousands of years later, and a selection of these, uh, of these scientific discoveries and, and proof of, of the reasoning for why God commanded certain things in the Bible, these can be found in our article, The Bible Scoops the Scientists. The Bible Scoops the Scientists on watchjerusalem.co.il. And do check out our free booklet, Does God Exist? And that provides a more complete account of how modern science is actually proving the existence of a creator. Again, are all these things that we've looked at today just mere coincidence, such a vast number of precise scientific details, or are they an, an example of the divine origin of the Word of God? That, of course, will be for the listener to decide. As we conclude here, I will mention uh, if you're following our Cultural Universal series on Watch Jerusalem. This, this series is looking at uh, things universal across all human cultures, and it examines how evolutionists try and explain these things versus the biblical explanation for them and any archaeological evidence that uh, shows either way which, which account is accurate. 
You may have seen the latest one go up last week on clothing, and that adds to the others that we've posted on marriage and language. We've got one more in the system that should be coming out at any point uh, now in the future on music. And we look at how evolution explains this unique human musicality. Really, there's nothing in the animal kingdom that comes close to human musicality. So how does evolution explain it? How do evolutionists explain it? And what is the biblical explanation? And what does archaeology tell us about it? So stay tuned for that article. Also, a new article hopefully coming out in the coming weeks that I'm really excited about. It'll be entitled something like, the case for Adam and Eve. Most people dismiss this story as just a fanciful myth, but did you know how much science there is behind this story? How science has actually trans, uh, traced our lineage back to one man and one woman? Did you know the science behind man coming out of the earth and why the rib is an ideal bone to create Eve out of? And the vast amount of extra-biblical and archaeological evidence behind the story. So stay tuned for that as well. I'm really excited about that one. That's been really interesting to research that subject for that article. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's program. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've got any comments or queries, please do send them to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. We appreciate the feedback we're getting. So until next time then, goodbye.